This morning's scripture comes from Luke 1, that's 20, verses 26 through 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man whose name was Joseph of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. Having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, you highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was greatly troubled at the saying and considered what kind of salutation this might be. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, seeing I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, also, the Holy One who is born from you will be called the Son of God. Behold, Elizabeth, your relative also has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing spoken by God is impossible. Mary said, Behold the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. So I saw a, a particular character uh, this week on a TV show that had gone through this new de-aging technology. I won't tell you the character because I don't want to give anything away, but it's this thing that's really shown up in the last few years that I, I find kind of fascinating, that you've had these actors, they, you know, they're, they're experimenting with the technology where if it's a living actor, they do this interesting blend where they'll have the, the actor stand there, and then they'll take a younger person that looks kind of like them, and they'll have them actually film them in the same spot, and then they have this like kind of computer wizardry to blend them, and so all of a sudden this actor will just you know, they'll lose 30 or 40 years. I've seen it with Robert Downey Jr. and, and uh, let's see, Michael Douglas, Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, Robert De Niro, all these like really well-known actors suddenly lose 30 or 40 years. Um, and in, in fact, they've experimented with some, some dead actors and tried to create the digital recreations of them. But that, the, the idea of this de-aging technology really for actors really fa fascinates me because it really invites, in all of these examples, you're having really well-known actors, and it, it, it is calling us to kind of go back to a moment in time. You know, how compelling would it be to take a person and, and you can actually make their face look like it looked 40 years ago and have this well-known actor kind of recreate a moment uh, for us. But I think that, that kind of idea of moving back in time, longing for something that, that makes us look backwards, really is um, a picture of this time of year. I mean, I think the holidays really have that front and center for us that... Um, you know, even with music, I was thinking, I was kind of amused this week, I was listening to some Christmas music here at, at, at church, and I realized that there's one of the songs that I was playing that, I, say, I think I've listened to this on a, I can date myself, but I've listened to it on a reel-to-reel, -reel. I've listened to it on, on an LP, I've listened to it on a cassette, on a CD, on an iPod, and now I'm listening to it on Spotify. Like, over the years, you've got all of this technology change, and the song still remains. Um, a lot of times at the holidays, we're reaching for something in our past. We're looking back, um, and a lot of folks really, in a sense, you want something that may come true again. You know, there's a, a lot of nostalgia that hovers over the holidays. That can be both good and bad, uh, but I think especially this year where, uh, you know, probably most of us are going to experience some kind of altered experience of 
our holidays. Like we're having some kind of either, you know, there's somebody that's not there, there's somebody missing, there, you can't be with someone you want to be with, or you're feeling awkward if you are with them. I mean, there's, I'd say probably many of us, if not most of us, are experiencing some variation, some different thing. I think it makes the past loom that much larger. And the past looms large in, in Luke 1. It looms large in the story of the incarnation of Jesus. Luke really wants us to hear about the coming of Jesus Christ in, in the first couple chapters of Luke, but wants us to hear it in light of the past. The past is looming large because, in a sense, the past is coming true. One of the keys that he wants us to hear in the opening chapters of Luke is that in, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, as God becomes man, as he makes his dwelling among us, God is fulfilling old promises. Uh, God is a promise keeper, and those promises are coming true in, in Jesus. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to do so. Open them to, to the first chapter of Luke. I want, we just read verses 26 through 38, but I want to cover the first 38 verses. Um, Luke is big. Um, we're going to be, this, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Over the next couple years, as we look at Luke and Acts, we're going to be covering about a fourth of the New Testament uh, in terms of just content. It's a lot. And so some of these chapters, it's a lot of ground to cover. But, but Luke is, is arranging his material in such a way that, that as we take some of these sweeps, we're going to cover 38 verses today, and we're not going to detail every single verse, you know, just so you give you comfort there. Um, but when you take this kind of higher level view, there's some things that it invites us to see and to notice because Luke is doing something. If you look at the first four verses, Luke is kind of introducing himself to his, his audience. He's writing to somebody named Theophilus. We don't really know who Theophilus is. But some people think it's his benefactor. It's, it's a Gentile-type name, so he thinks he's writing to a Gentile audience. But, but really, the, the key is that he, he shows he's writing something that is well-researched. He's, uh, he is you know, seen and read what the eyewitnesses to Jesus have recorded. He is, but, but in all of this, he's seeing all of these accounts that Luke is looking at. But if you look at verse 3, it's as if he sees there's something that's been missing. And if there's one thing I want you to see from those first four verses is that phrase, in my translations, he says he wants to write an orderly account. It's an ordered account. What is an orderly account, and why does he want them to have it. Well, he, it's an orderly account in that he wants, he thinks what's been missing in other accounts is the arrangement of the material of the story of Jesus in such a way that you can see things that you might have overlooked otherwise. And I think that's the key to the organization of Luke as we move through Luke and Acts, because I think it's written very much as a two-volume work. Um, he is ordering these things. The order is not just purely chronological. He's not just interested in chronology. He's interested in bringing things together so that we can notice them anew. And you will see that a lot over the next few weeks as we kind of look at the story of the incarnation of Jesus. One of the key structures in this opening few chapters is um, it's a series of pairs. We're going to see some interesting pairings in these uh, opening chapters. And you see it uh, in, in what I've called today the, these two announcements. The first thing he gives us is, is two different announcements, and he wants us to read them together, to notice something about them. And it opens in verse 5 with the announcement of John the Baptist to Zechariah. Um, 
in the announcement uh, that he has, we first get to know Zechariah. And what we see there, if you look at verse 5 and following, that Zechariah, what, what is happening here is that the angel Gabriel is appearing to a holy man from a holy family in a holy moment. And that's a lot of what he's spelling out in these early verses. He does a lot to talk about Zechariah, who's a priest. Well, he's a holy man. And in their day, priests were respected. To actually call someone a priest, people would actually look up to them. They kind of see them a little bit as an arm's length. They hold them apart. It talks about him as being a priest from this division of Abijah, which is simply saying that he's you know, kind of legitimate, comes from a legitimate background. In fact, it even spells out that his wife, Elizabeth, is also from the, one of the daughters of Aaron, which is from the priestly line. Now, that's not required of priests. They didn't have to marry within the tribe, but if they did, it was considered of a special honor and really kind of established kind of the purity of their lineage. So he's a holy man and, and one who is lifted up in his community. Um, and, and he's from a holy family. He's got the right line. His wife is from the li- right line. It even says, verse 6, it spells out that he is, they, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So he's a holy man, not just in his title, but he's a holy man in how, how he actually lives his life. Uh, he is a righteous person, a righteous man, a follower of Yahweh, um, and... And actually, at that moment, it introduces this other little twist in the story, verse 7, which it tells us that, that they're old. Actually, he's an old man, which actually age would also be a, a respected thing then. We live in a youth-dominated culture. We are probably more inclined in our, age, in our day, more, more people would be inclined to listen to the young rather than the old. It's very much the opposite there and throughout history. His age means that he gets status, uh, that he's respected but here, he is, he's, has no child, and Elizabeth is barren. Now that, if that were by itself, uh, that would make us think that there's something wrong. Because at the time, they thought, you know, having a child was a sign of a blessing of God, and not having a child was often for them a sign of a curse from God. So if that's all you knew about him, you'd wonder about him. But, but when that's been prefaced with all of this information about his holiness, we don't think about barrenness then as some kind of curse. You think about barrenness in light of the Old Testament where you see a pattern of God giving extraordinary blessing and doing extraordinary things through people who don't have children. And specifically, as we read this, where we probably should be thinking of is, is Abraham. Um, and, and I think a lot of this is written to remind us of Zechariah as a kind of new Abraham. Uh, he is, this is an occasion for God to do something extraordinary when you consider his, the, the barrenness of the family in light of the extraordinary righteousness and holiness. He's a holy man from a holy family, and it's also a holy moment, verse 8 shows him serving as a priest, and his division is on duty, and, and according to the custom, he's chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
Now, we can run past that, but that's a significant moment. There's, I think there are 24 different divisions of priests, and they all take, it's kind of almost like an army reserve thing. They each take two weeks, and they go serve at the temple. They all do their duty every year. They've got two weeks where each division's going to do it. There's a lot of tasks, in it, and the priests are scattered throughout, but they're all going to come, and each have their two weeks. They're serving at the temple, and while they're serving at the temple, among this large group of priests, they're going to have this every day. Twice a day, somebody's going to go in there and burn incense. It's an offering they're going to make twice a day. And that, if you kind of did the numbers, to be chosen for that role was a -a once-in-a-lifetime kind of moment. So this is kind of like the crown achievement of his career as a priest, that he gets to go into the holy place and to offer this sacrifice, to give this, this moment here, whether it's the morning or the evening when that would happen. And in fact, it's the moment where the priest would be as close to the most holy place as anyone except the high priest can be. So this is like the holiest moment of his life because for them to be there next to the most holy place is to be in the very presence of God. I mean, this is a significant moment in his life. It's like, it is the moment. This is like the crown achievement that he would always dream of as a priest to actually stand there in the presence of God. And that's the moment. Chosen by Lot, and in Bible speak that tells us, this providence of God, uh, the Lot is cast Every decision belongs to the Lord, I believe Proverbs tells us. This is something God chooses this most holy moment for him to appear and to announce what he's going to do here. And what is he doing? Verse 10, notice the, the multitude is gathered. They're praying, which is what they're supposed to do, the hour of incense. They're praying. And as he goes there, he is supposed to be praying for the people. That's what it is. It's a prayer for the nation. So Zechariah, if he's a holy man, he's praying for the nation. And there, in that moment, verse 11, there appears to him an angel standing next to the altar of incense. And when the angel appears, Zechariah has the appropriate response, which he's afraid. Fear falls upon him in verse 12. And the angel says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now, in that moment, the hour of incense, the priest, holy man, he's supposed to be praying for the people. And let's assume that he was praying for the people. Sir, from the angel, the announcement from the angel is not first about the nation, or at least it doesn't seem to be. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. So this angel is promising joy for him and for Israel in in John, who is this special man set aside for a special purpose. This answer to prayer comes, and, and he is praying. That praying for the nation may be the reason why he's there. But let's be honest, we could understand that there's a heart prayer, that kind of deep thing that he's praying for. And I know a lot of you have had that, that thing that you're really yearning for, that life's call, that life's desire. And it's almost like it's that prayer that becomes just kind of the ache that you feel day in and day out. That also seems to be the thing that's on his heart. 
And the trick is that both of those prayers are being answered in the announcement of Gabriel. The, that John is coming. John is coming to bring joy, not just to the family of Zechariah, but to the many. That multitude that's currently outside the temple, their prayer is being answered too, though not in the way that they would expect. John is coming. And a lot of the emphasis about what John is going to be emphasizes his greatness. He's going to be great. He's going to do wonderful things. He's coming as a, he comes with a, like a Samson-like figure. He's, he's called to make this vow. He's not, going to, he's not going to drink wine or strong drink. That's, a, that's an odd thing for the time. Why is he doing that? Samson is the one that, that we see in Scripture that makes that same type of calling, that he's not to ever touch alcohol, he's not to ever cut his hair. It's a Nazarite-type vow, which is a vow for a particular person who's set aside for a particular season of their life for some calling on God. Uh, except that calling is not just for a season for John, that is, is his whole life. He is a Samson-type figure coming to redeem Israel. He is an Elijah-type figure. He spells it out in verse 17. He'll go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. He's going to be an Elijah-type figure who's a prophet from God. He's coming to bring reform. That idea of the fathers and the children having a different relationship is a picture of deep and profound reform for the people. The people need to be changed and that change will come is that will call them through a ministry of repentance. He's going to be calling them back to God, a very prophet-like role. Uh, he is going to come, and his ultimate work is, verse 17, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John is a special man set aside with this special purpose. Then the response from Zechariah to all this is, well, like Abraham, I don't how, how in the world can I believe this is true? Verse 18, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. Same kind of thing that Abraham said to, to the angel so long ago. And the angel answered, I'm Ab- I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And so you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah responds with doubt, and it's, I think it's, we've got to find, it's a, it's a right kind of balance we've got to find in understanding Zechariah. It's, 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 I think it's easy to be too hard on him, it's easy to be too easy. Um, we've got to see him like Abraham, his doubt, Abraham doubted, he didn't really believe, Sarah doubted, she laughed. Um, but, but in that moment, his response to that is that he is um, silenced. Which sets up a pattern that you're going to see in the, in the early ministry of Jesus, that Jesus will silence the unbelief. But that silence is, is often a kind of teaching tool. You don't need to talk right now. You don't understand what's going on. You just need to zip your lip and listen and observe. Watch what I'm up to. That's kind of what he's telling Zechariah. Um, and, and, in, and in contrast, he goes out, now silence, the people are dumbfounded, they understand something significant happened, uh, but he is able to communicate, and eventually Elizabeth, verse 24, conceives, but her response is very different. Thus the Lord has done for me, verse 25, in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. She sees and receives this miracle birth in faith, and 
And in that, she actually is anticipating Mary and her response. But the holy man from a holy family in a holy moment, called to a holy thing, doubted. I wasn't sure. Contrast that with verse 26 and the announcement of Jesus. You look at, at Mary, six month, Gabriel sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Here, the angel appears to an ordinary woman from an ordinary family in an ordinary moment with an extraordinary announcement. So it's a fascinating thing that here in this moment that he shows up, um, Nazareth would have been a discounted place. Luke doesn't make as much of that as John does, but Nazareth is not the temple. Nazareth is not the center of, of God's work. It's some outskirts. Um, and he's showing up and speaking to a woman who's the only thing that we, they say about her that would be of note is that, that Joseph is from the house of David. Notice it's stressed that it's the father's lineage here. Uh, so he's got the right lineage, but to be from the house of David is not like, you know, it's kind of like there's a lot of those around. Uh, it's, it's an ordinary family. So there's nothing extraordinary spelled out. And even if we will ultimately admire Mary's response, notice here there's nothing like with Zechariah that takes the time to spell out she's righteous or you know, obedient to the Torah. It's, it's, there's nothing that spells out anything particularly extraordinary about her. Ordinariness is a place where God shows up. The outskirts among an ordinary people, but with this extraordinary thing, this extraordinary call. When Gabriel says, you know, greetings to you, greetings, O favored one, one of the translations, um, that resembles Judges 13, the call on Samson's mother, the unnamed mother. Um, but what he says to her actually sounds a lot like Noah as well. Noah as experiencing the favor of God. Mary here is the recipient of, the, of God's grace. I think that alone, you need to say, we need to pause there and to reflect on that, if we're to understand Mary well, there's a lot of differences in, the, in Christendom uh, about the nature of Mary. And one of the key divides between Protestants and Catholics is, is how Mary is perceived. Here, Mary is the recipient of God's grace, not the mediator of God's grace. And at least in popular Marian theology in the Catholic Church, in fact, I've read a lot a lot of bishops actually try to correct this, but a lot of times Mary is seen as a mediator between us and God. That's not her role here at all. She is a recipient of the grace of God and actually becomes a model for us in how she responds to the grace of God. Um, verse 29, she's greatly troubled at the saying, oh, greetings to you, of everyone, the Lord is with you. It's like, well, what in the world? That's the kind of formal calling that you're putting on somebody that says, I've got a big call for you. God's got something in store for you. Mary does not see herself like the person that's going to get some extraordinary calling on her life. She's greatly troubled. She doesn't understand it. And then the angel, like Zacharias, says, don't be afraid. For you've found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And God will give to him the throne of the father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel takes this moment to announce the, this, this birth of the one who is better than John. 
And that's one of those things as you compare the announcements that is stressed in Luke is that there's this and there's the better thing. John does one thing, but Jesus is better. John is great. Jesus is great. And he's the son of the Most High. Now, if Luke is writing to a Greek audience, I think he is, the Greeks wouldn't have been really that shocked at this idea because they have a lot of stories of these great men who were born as a son of God. But it's more than that. He's ultimately spelling out he's not just a son of God. He is the son of God. He's the the son of the Most High. It's spelling out something that's better than John. And actually, I think one thing that's that you also probably remind yourself of is that John the Baptist would have been a known figure to many of them. If he's introducing uh, the story beginning with John, they would be like, yeah, I know who John is. And it's like, yeah, John was great. Jesus is better. And the purpose of John, the one that you know about and like and really respect and admire, was actually a point to Jesus. Um, He's going to have the throne of his father, David. So, so John is a herald. He's announcing something. He's preparing the way. Jesus is a king. He is the, the inheritor of this Davidic dynasty. Um, Nathan, in, in 2 Samuel 7, had promised to David a dynasty that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. An eternal reign. We read that this morning in Psalm 89. This idea of the, that there would be an eternal ruler of Israel is a promise made to David that from their vantage point in the first century, they're waiting to see ultimately come true again. God, you promised David would reign forever. It sure doesn't look like it now. What is this going to look like? That promise is coming true. John will prepare the way for the people. Jesus will rule the people. He will be the Holy One. He will be the Son of God. And Mary's response? How can this be? Since I am a virgin. And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And he, gives her the, he reminds her of the witness, and he actually points to Elizabeth and the, the, her pregnancy with John as a sign that you can trust me. I've already done one miraculous thing. This will be done for you as well. Elizabeth's pregnancy becomes a sign of, of, this, of the promise to Mary. There is this moment of incarnation that's such a significant moment in the history of the church. I think it's an interesting little historical note. Um, a lot of times this time of year, both you know, conservatives and liberals kind of all over Christianity, we talk about where did this idea of Christmas and December 25 come from? A lot of folks will say, well, it comes from some kind of you know, Roman pagan holiday. We're kind of reskinning an old Roman holiday. That, that idea came out of about the 11th century. Uh, the problem with that notion is it's about 800 years too late from uh, when actually that story was circulating. There, I was reading there's some history about where did this idea of December 25 come from. Some of the earliest evidence, we don't really know for sure, but the, some of the earliest evidence is that where it came from, and there's some evidence of this in the 2nd and 3rd century, is that it came from the church honoring March 25th. And actually in the East, they honored April 6th. March 25th was considered the date that Jesus died. A lot of times you're calculating the calendar based on the Passover. The East calculated it based on a different calendar system. So even today you will see the celebration of Easter is March 25th, April 6th, but then it was 
depends on how you're calculating these calendars every year. But March 25th, nine months later, December 25th, April 6th, nine months later, January 6th, within, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition is the date of Christmas. But the idea is that they had a belief at the time, it was a Jewish belief, that this, the date of your, you'd have significant dates in your lives that would parallel. So the date of the conception of Jesus was seen as parallel to the date of the death of Jesus. It's kind of an interesting idea. Whether that's historic or not is really secondary to the idea that the early church understood the significance of this moment, the power of God coming to earth through this virgin birth, through this one who is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Something is afoot. Something is radically different in the birth of Jesus Christ. And what that does then, you look at how Mary responds. What does she do? Verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, and let it be to me according to your word. She gives a response of humble faith. She gives a response as a kind of model for how we should respond to the work of God. And again, in a sense, Mary, actually like Zechariah, is a picture of true Israel. Zechariah is the priest, the holy one, the one with the knowledge of the coming of, uh, you know, he knows everything about scripture. But it's Mary who is the one who will now have the incarnation, the Son of God, dwell within her. She is true Israel. The Messiah will be inside her. And the response of true Israel is to respond with humble faith. And again, comparing the two announcements It's Mary that offers us the better response. She gives a response that's simply better than Zechariah. Now, why is that? And what are we supposed to hear? Let me offer two different keys that I think helps us understand that. First, um, in Christ, what's happening in Luke 1 is that the old promises of God are coming true because God always keeps his word. You can really mine these 38 verses and, and extract a lot of Old Testament echoes, and I've tried to give you some of them. You hear Abraham, we hear Samson, you hear Elijah, you hear David. And in all of these, the reason why we're hearing those echoes over and over again is that God is a promise keeper. That's who he is. Uh, and, and, and that alone can, can be the answer to our needs this season as we deal with this thing in a lot of different ways and a lot of folks are facing a lot of different types of challenges, we anchor ourselves in the simple fact that God is a promise keeper. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. And those old promises are coming true in Jesus Christ. And so it's not simply that we're clinging to promises and saying, well, maybe someday they'll come true, but that we look first to God as promise keeper, the character of God, and then we look to Jesus Christ and we know that those old promises have come true and are coming true through Jesus Christ. And, and the second piece, and I think this goes to the contrast between Zechariah and Mary, is that God keeps his word in unexpected ways through unexpected people. So the holy man, in a holy moment, uh, with all the training, in a sense wasn't ready to hear the word of God. He wasn't ready for what God was up to because 
All of his training had prepared him with the particular expectation that God should act this way. The poor woman, the outsider, without the training, was ready. And that gets at something you're going to see again and again throughout the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, which is a kind of reversal. People that we don't expect to respond are the ones that respond. The people that we do expect to respond don't respond, or they struggle. Here, it's the, the woman. Uh, she gets a name and a voice in a culture, the patriarchal culture. The men are the ones that are valued. It's the woman that has a name, the woman that has the voice. It's the poor person, who, and the outcast, and the forgotten here that get the voice, that model faithfulness. And the religious expert often does miss the point. Are they coming too late to the party? I say you can be too hard on Zechariah because I don't think he's a villain in this story. But Zechariah is slower to come around. Um, and I think that alone is some hope that Luke isn't giving up on the people he represents. But when we look for faith and we look for models of faithfulness, we can expect God is upending the story. That the main work of God isn't happening in the centers of power. It isn't happening among the celebrities or the elite. It is happening first and foremost among the people. And as the, God moves and works among the people, you can see a world shaped, changed, and transformed. God keeps his word in unexpected ways through unexpected people. So I expect this season coming up in the next few weeks will be different for a lot of people. I expect it will be hard for a lot of people. Memories can be challenging. And a lot of times you may find yourself thinking about what might have been, what once was, or what could have been. There will be a temptation to try to live in a past that's gone. But for us, we rest in God's faithfulness right now. God keeps His Word. God kept His Word in Jesus Christ he kept his word in the word, and he is still keeping it today. Jesus is the promise of joy to the family here, little Zechariah, that his family, the family of Mary. Jesus is the promise of joy to the people of God throughout the world. We can rest in that promise in this season. Let's pray. God, I pray your blessing on this season for the different experiences that people are having wherever people are at. But in our highs and our lows, God, I pray that we will remember that through Jesus Christ, you are a promise keeper, that you keep your word, and we can trust in your grace and your faithfulness to sustain us as your people now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. If we can help you in any way, please come while we stand and sing.